Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisby, wishing you a very happy new year. And before we launch into 2021, we thought we'd take a look back at some of our favourite moments of 2020 in conversation with some of Ori Clark's delightful and enlightening clients. And first up is our debut episode with Tom Best from The Auction Collective. I set up The Auction Collective to make buying art a normal everyday practice or not practice they're normal every everyday month. experience perhaps every, every six yeah. months depends how many hundred thousand how, how often do you have auctions we have six to eight a year um and i saw you know working at christie's wonderful and, and incredible uh, institution but very intimidating and the art market in general is very intimidating there's so many hidden fees you go into a gallery you're not quite sure what the price is for a work and you don't quite know why that white square is hundred pounds and that white square is 10,000 pounds. They look mm. the same. Um, so I created these auctions and auctions are such a fun way to, to buy something. We made the auctions uh, commission free for buyers. So what you bid is what you pay. Most auctions you have to pay VAT on top, a buyer's commission. Is there VAT on art anyway? There, it's a, 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 if I may interrupt, as the uh, accountant present here, is the concept of a margin scheme, which is that you pay the difference between what you paid for it and what you sell it for, provided the artist isn't VAT registered. I see. Uh, so in, it's in VAT other words, on the, no on the service, not yeah, on the exactly. Well, you, yeah, on the on the difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So there's some VAT unless they're a VAT registered artist, in which case they're quite a successful artist. But we to to make our auctions totally uncomplicated we have what you bid is what you pay so we absorb the vat into our fees as well so we take the hit of the vat and and presumably as it's emerging and and what was the and unrepresented artists authenticity isn't isn't ever an issue in a way that it is so interestingly one of the other ways that we i don't want to say disrupt because it sounds too negative but we opened up a new market um is that we work directly with artists. So most auction houses do secondary market sales, which is basically secondhand goods. They work with collectors to help sell their property. Whereas we go to art schools, we go to open studios, go to um, see graduates and go and work with the artists who put auctions together. So it's artwork coming straight from their studios. So you're almost like the agent for the artist. We operate more like a a gallery. Do you go around... I mean, are you quite selective about who you put on in your auctions? Or? Yeah. yeah. And do, Fussy. Do, do, <laughs> Curating. Uh, discriminating. <laughs> All different ways of saying the same thing. And, but, uh, and, and do you, I mean, do some artists come away from your auctions, you know, broken hearted? Uh, <laughs> we're we're going to find five different ways of saying that now. So, so go back to your point about educating about uh, people about auctions. At the beginning of all our auctions, um, because we've got so many first-time art buyers and first-time auction buyers, um, I always do a spiel at the beginning to say, um, we've selected all these artists because we love them, we, we love working with them, we believe in their artwork, um, but it is a luxury retail space uh, and some things sell, some things don't sell. It's no reflection on what we think of the artist or the quality of the artwork. And so you kind of set the tone with that and then when an artwork doesn't sell, which some don't, the artist doesn't think, oh God, I'm really upset. And the whole room doesn't suddenly sigh with um, awkwardness. Up next is Chris Howard from The Rattle. 
the way the music industry is, it it's really difficult to make money to earn a living if you write popular songs. Uh, even if, you know, like I, I wrote a song that was a viral hit earlier this year and it, it was like number one on the Amazon singles chart and it had 600,000 views on YouTube and a million and a half on Facebook and it was number 17 in the iTunes chart. And total gross revenues from this song so far, I think, are $2,600. Oh, you know, and that, oh, that in, in the 70s, that song could have probably looked after me for a couple of years. Oh, it's bonkers, isn't it? Like the, the thing that, the thing I've been trying to distill from the world of startups, like I, I first matured, so to speak, when I went to MIT. Like when I got up, divorced. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and then I got divorced. But like, um, thank you, mate. But like, <laughs> the thing that like, that I realized is that a company isn't a business. They're, they're actually two different things. Like, you know, a, a company is a collection of people that try and achieve an end result by creating a business and a product and a brand. So three core functions of a company. And the point of a brand is to change people's behavior by doing something fucking incredible, right? You get in front of their attention, you say, don't do that, do this. Don't think that, think this. Or don't feel that, feel this. And if your brand does a good job, you collect advocates in return. People who, to your company, like people who believe like, holy shit, man, that is amazing. But the difference is a brand isn't a thing you often monetize. It's a product that you monetize. Like monetizing a product is solving a commercial problem. Like I would rather pay somebody to do this than me do it myself. Or I would rather pay someone to build something because I can't be asked to learn or I don't have the time or I don't have the network. So you buy a product to shortcut a solution to a problem. And all a business is, is the glue that puts those two things together and manages the resources, right? So every artist under the sun that good artist under the sun is fucking brilliant at changing behavior, like utterly brilliant at changing behavior. But the problem that people used to pay for... The, the artist is good at changing behavior. You mean, uh, uh, I, I listen to Led Zeppelin, they don't change my behavior. What do you they mean? They change your mood. My mood. Okay, they, they change... change like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. They make you feel a different thing or they inspire you to go and watch a show or they say, listen to this to a mate, right? Right, right. They ultimately... They, they have in, a huge influence. Yeah, they get in front yeah, of your right, attention right, and make right. you do something differently. But the problem of access to music, sorry, the problem, <laughs> fuck, <laughs> the problem of the music industry used to be access to that music. So the commercial problem was, how do I listen to that at home? Or how do I listen to it again? Or how do I listen to it on the move? So you would pay for that problem to be solved. The second Napster came out, that problem vanished. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise to anybody that streaming is not a product. It's not a product, it's a marketing engine. And up next is Roy Moed from Lifebook. Let me ask you another question, Roy. I'm going to change the subject a little bit, but I'm really interested in uh, what you talked, what, this, you know, leaving a legacy, this idea that of, of leaving a legacy. Um, if you were to, you know, advise people now about, you know, who are just going about their lives, doing their jobs, running their businesses and so on, you know, think about leaving a legacy. Just talk about that a little bit. What would what would your advice be? It, it goes back to this whole thing about purpose. What is your purpose? What's the objective? And a legacy doesn't necessarily be, need to be about you. It can be about something you've done, something you've made a change in the world or improved on or contributed to. So I think we often get confused of, you know, What's your legacy going to be being um, Roy Moed or whoever else it is? And for me, my legacy is going to be Lifebook, that I've enabled that. For other people, it's, it's what, it, what can you do to 
make it better for the world today. So I, I think everybody's um, answer to that is going to be very different. Would you be advising people to, you know, if they're bored in their jobs or bored with their businesses, would you say, look, pull your socks up, grow a pair, take a deep breath, go out and do something different? 100%. <laughs> I, think, I think purpose is everything, um, especially in what's going on in the world today. And um, whether that's uh, any form of the politics we can get in, into or, or the life challenges we've got. What is the meaning of life? What, what are we here for? What is it all about? Um, and uh, I think uh, that eulogy, there, there is no point being busy fools. There's no point, as, as the saying goes, having on your gravestone, I'd, um, I, w- I wished I'd worked harder. You know, or that's not going to be the the reason of life. Work, work don't die, as they say in uh, in the Caribbean. Work don't die; people do. <laughs> you know, the works. I mean, I I'm actually I I hear it said so often, and I think I'm talking to people who have followed it. You know, do what they love, and they love what they do, and stuff. Maybe because I was sort of pushed into accountancy, uh, uh, I feel differently. But I I I think it's obviously a noble statement, but I, it upsets me a bit because it's a bit like, well, you know, yeah, if you can, like, do what you do. Let's say, let's say, okay, so I love music, so I would love to make money out of music, but making money out of music is like, it's almost impossible. Do you know what I mean? And it will break you, you know? And yeah, you might have fun and blah, 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 but do I think, am I annoyed with my dad? He made me be an accountant. Not now I'm 40. Now I've got kids and shit, you know, I'm like, it's and it's a fucking crisis, you know. COVID, you know, it's absolutely destroying musicians. It's like, is it really advice we can give everyone? Because not everyone gets to do what they love, do they? No, but the case is, you know, with with artists, for example, it's very it's very few who actually make the living that they need to make out of their art. But like you, Andy. What you've done is you've done this job in order to be able to afford your art form. And I play polo. I could never earn money as a polo player. Nobody earns, very few people earn money. But you work bloody hard at something else to be able to do that. And and I think that that's often the case, whether it's music or painting or whatever. Um, I, I get a lot of people with their young kids, they want to be an artist, they want to be a fashion, they want to be a ballet dancer or whatever. And you've got to let them go through that and try and earn a living out of it. But at some stage, they're going to have to move on to something that's going to be able to afford them or be content with having the living that's going to support them to eat and have a roof over their head. Up next is Angus Donaldson, serial entrepreneur and investor. I saw a presentation the other day about advertising done by a guy, I think it was Sarch or someone, one of the big advertisers. But he described how, you know, if you think of the great ads, like I follow great ads of the 1970s on Twitter. Mm. Oh, that's and a good s- thing to follow. Oh, that's great. Oh. And some of those ads are white. <laughs> Drink like it, mm-hmm. you'll be a man. Yeah, all that. And the, 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 the Hamlet ads and the mannequin. Oh, the Hamlet ads. Yeah, I mean, there were just so many great advertising campaigns. Um, and yet, you know, maybe it's just one of these things we instinctively remember the past better than it actually was. But I look at some of the advertising campaigns that, that are around today, and in my opinion, they're just not as good. And 
I mean, you know, the, the production values and that kind of thing is better. But this guy, I was listening to this presentation, he said 90% of advertising now is, whereas once upon a time you'd have a sort of creative director and 50, 60% of it would be his own judgment. And whereas now over 90% of advertising is data-driven. Mm. And perhaps that's taken the soul out of advertising. The actual advertising of the product might be more effective than it was in the 1970s, which is ultimately what the product designer wants. But the actual sort of, lack of creative soul of advertising yeah, yeah. is gone. I might actually disagree with that because I think that programmatic does drive a lot of advertising, but it's just data and you're just using data. But advertising is much more disposable now. So the advertising agents of the Don Drapers and Laters you know, had time and creative craft and, and power advert. ability to yeah, get out there but they, they had time and money to to create a fantastic advert and if it worked we all remember it because it was a fantastic advert and they have huge they have huge pride in it and pat each other on the back and give each other awards but frankly it's different generation you've got two seconds on the screen now you know you're going to look at that you're going to move on the advert itself actually still has to be really good because it's competing for attention with every single person on your feed. In the old days, you know, those adverts you remember was because we had one television yeah. Yeah, channel we showing seven. adverts. We all saw it and it sticks in your psyche. I think it needs to be better now because it actually you have so many yeah. drains on your attention for you to remember an advert. And there are a lot which are memorable and there are a lot which are good. They actually have to be really brilliant. The only thing is, and this is why my little agency exists, you can't add the same sort of adverts to a television program, to a cinema program, to a billboard, to your ad to your social feed. Sure, they can have a theme, but you have to remember your audience. You have to remember your audience's attention span, how long they'll see it. You know, you, you probably saw the R. White's advert 50 times okay. and smiled about it every time. If you see the same advert 50 times oh, on your Instagram feed, feed, it's spam. It's spam after well, three. That, that's that thing. I got that this once one you're again. shown the same advert over and again, whereas we were in the 70s and 80s, you would you would pass the point of annoyance and you'd start getting into it. It's what would happen. And as you say, they were beautifully crafted to just sort of be a yeah. bit cheeky, follow the bear, you know, just bizarre. Yeah. You know, uh, and you're right now, if I saw an advert 30 times, I'd be, are you saying I'd be like, You'd be f- furious with I'd it. I'd be furious. It would be a spam. It'd be spam, spam after four. I've got the same one that comes up every time I watch a YouTube video. And it's a blonde guy. <laughs> Hi, if I want to transform my business, I, I think it's Wix. Is it Wix? <laughs> I don't know. That's not us. <laughs> Next is Noel Duncan from Sisu Health. Let's just assume I'm an ordinary bloke, maybe a stone heavier than I'd like to be. Uh, you know, maybe my heartbeat is 10 beats per minute you know, faster than I'd like it to be. I'd like to be a little bit fitter. What's the single best thing you can do to transform your health? Can I have two, Dom? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the thing that I always encourage people is um, is incidental activity. And, and, and I think that if we can enhance our incidental activity, um, I think it's really going to have a really significant impact across the entire population. And I don't care whether it's, you know, the UK, Europe, Australia, you know, America. We're, we're very sedentary in our jobs. You know, we're very sedentary in sitting at the desk. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm certainly, um, you know, certainly in this category where I can sit at my desk for 10 hours in a day, you know. And um, But what we need to be able to do is to build in incidental activity. And certainly one of the things that we encourage with our team is, you know, take a phone call as opposed 
close to a Zoom call and go for a walk while you're catching up with, you know, one of your colleagues and try to build in as much incidental activity as, as you can. And one of the great things is that, um, you know, with our phones, you know, you, you can easily track, you know, the amount of incidental activity that you're doing per day. And so, you know, you don't need to go out there and dedicate yourself to a two-hour walk every day, but what you can do is try to, you know, just build up through incidental activity you know, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000, 14,000 steps a day. And that's going to have a, a, a really significant impact. Yesterday, I went to the office in London and came back again. And I did 8,400 steps doing that. And normally, since lockdown, I'm, I'm doing 1,500 unless I walk the dog and then it's 4,500. So you would have thought walking the dog was similar, but I did twice as much and all I did was walk to the tube, take the tube to work, walk to the office, walk back to the tube. That's all I did. And I was like, yeah. oh my God. And the other thing is, if you have a day at work, or, you know, for me, I might be going to from sound studio to sound studio or something. And you, um, sometimes it'll be, you'll get home at dinner time and you'll go, oh, I forgot to have lunch. I just didn't have time to have lunch. And you so you end up missing meals. Whereas I can tell you at home, I never miss a meal. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and it's such a it's such an important you know social um, you know component as well. You might say, you know, uh, with a colleague, hey, do you want to go down and get a cup of coffee? And you know, so there's another kind of thousand, fifteen hundred steps. Or you know, you might have to go and catch up with another colleague who's you know two stories up or two stories down. And there's so much incidental activity. And I mean, you know, while Zoom has made it and, and uh, Microsoft Teams has made our lives very very easy to go from uh, finishing a meeting at 59 on the hour to starting another meeting at zero on the hour, there are there are consequences and there are physical, you know, uh, health consequences that we really need to, need to consider. So, you know, I think that we really need to, to look at it. And I, one of the things that I've always thought about is, um, and, and I remember when uh, when Boris was actually the mayor of London, um, I think I sent him, a, I think I sent him an email or, or, or a note to say, why don't you slow down the... Um, Slow down the the, the elevators on the uh, on the tube stations because it'll encourage more people to walk up and down the stairs. You know, because you see everyone standing <laughs> to the right, and you see a whole no, range. You of mean the escalators? Make the escalators. Sorry, the escalator. Yeah, the escalator. Yeah. And what a great idea! If you slow them down, it's going to really annoy people, and so they'll move to the left and start walking. And uh, and you can always blame it on health and safety. You should join the ministry of nudges. <laughs> yes, ministry of miniature changes or whatever. <laughs> Right, tell us number two. Incidental activity number one, tell us number two. Well, the, the other, to, to, to sort of go back to the question, Dom, in terms of what we can do for our health, um, I, I'm an enormous sleep um, advocate. I, I think that the, um, the, the health benefits of sleep are, are genuinely significant and I don't think as a society, again, you know, in, in the Western world, we, we provide um, enough support and enough encouragement and enough education around the benefits of sleep. Um, and particularly for young people, um, you know, and particularly with the advent of uh, social media and phones and um, and taking phones into the bedroom, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a cleanser. You know, it's a cleanser for the brain, and and we need to be able to make sure that we get good quality sleep so that we can, you know, attack the the next day. Um, it has a, a, a physiological effect on our hormonal profile. Has a physiological effect in terms of the way that we. Um, uh, synthesize and store, you know, um, memory um, information. You know, there's really great research to be able to show that it's, um, you know, will attenuate the incidence of, you know, a lot of neurological um, diseases. And uh, and there are so many different benefits that we can that we can help an individual. But you know, rarely do we see, you know, much education around sleep and the importance of sleep. And 
And, uh, and I think they're just two really simple things that we can try to encourage people to do is get your sleep and build as much phys- physical activity into your daily life. And next is Gabrielle Patrick from NABU. I know half of, of very early um, Bitcoin adopters who are millionaires who are not phased by their wealth. They go to work. They work very hard. They work more than eight and hours a day. And they sit on their Bitcoin or they traded them in when you said They trade it when they need to, mm. but they actually work really hard and they try to create some sort of value for society, some real value. And then there are others who are wealthy and they don't care. This is a sort of, I think this is at the core of something, which is this this, this, this thing that really bugs me, this anger towards wealth. And I think you've hit something there. It's, there's something about people having a lot of money then they haven't really worked for it. There's something about the sort of speculation. Well, well okay, so this, I'll take it one step further. I believe, and I think there's evidence for this, that even if you work hard for it, there are people who are jealous. That's human yeah, nature, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Why should you have so much and I have so little? It doesn't matter that, you know, I came from poverty and I made myself a self-billionaire and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. People don't care about that. And so to me, again, this is what the Bitcoin conversation is exposing, you know, that disparity of wealth. Is that appropriate? Maybe it doesn't matter because that's just Why life. Why is the Bitcoin conversation exposing that? Because, again, you have an alternative where people have been able to invest in Bitcoin and become Bitcoin millionaires. Yes. I think this is what you were saying before. Does that still exist because the time has gone on? But there are a number of people who have become exceptionally wealthy where they would not have become otherwise wealthy, in my opinion, had they not developed a Bitcoin business that scaled or came in very early, traded very early, saw an opportunity very early. luck, almost. I mean, sort of one step. I don't think it's all luck. A, A lot of it are people who had a vision thought this peer-to-peer network was exceptional. And at the time, a lot of them actually did not know that it would become valuable. Yeah, Some of them actually just conceptually believed in this peer-to-peer network that was electronic cash that did not need a trusted intermediary. And they just bought into it. They didn't know. I mean, and you're talking about people who at the time it was like, what, five cents Mm. for Bitcoin? They didn't know it was going to reach 20 grand in 2017 or anything like that. You know, so I'm I'm just saying, you know, I do feel a lot of people don't talk about this. At the end of the day, you're dealing with human beings. Some human beings are thoughtful, and they will actively work and contribute to society as a selfless and a thankless job. And other people are just selfish well, and we, they don't we really all, care. We all feel jealousy <clears throat> and it's a powerful emotion and it motivates sometimes amazing actions by people. It's not always a negative, you know, that comes out of that jealousy. Your jealousy drives you to, you know, to, to raise your own game. But I think for you, what you're saying, which I agree with, and I, I mean, I hate to use the word love, but it's more like, you know, some characters have been, some people have been well loved and conditioned in a way that means that although they'll feel jealousy, it won't destroy or drive their behavior. In a, it's in very a- it's very difficult to achieve when, for example, previously maybe you were earning, I don't know, five grand a month and all of a sudden you're sitting on like five million pounds or something like that. I mean, it, it's difficult. Yes. It's difficult. And so, you know, for me personally, I do think I could speak for most people on my team. We're actually really not driven by the money. No. It's just a mission for us. And the upside is just a, an added benefit. But again, you know, I probably shouldn't see it publicly, but I'll see it anyway. You know, <laughs> power corrupts. Yes. And money corrupts. And yes. so when you are dealing fundamentally with the concept of, of money, it's very difficult to not be seduced by it. 
Next up, it's Ben Thompson from Employment Hero. So, so with our company, we've said, look, we are remote first. And that also implies things like we will not hold a meeting uh, face-to-face unless everybody is in the room. So if there's a meeting with 10 people involved and one of them has decided to live in Byron Bay, which is where all of the Australians are moving because it's an awesome place, or used to be before everyone moved there. Um, um, <laughs> and, and so I chose to live in Byron Bay. Well, I don't want to be left out of meetings, you know, all the side chat and everything else. So if I'm not there, then no one, then we don't have a meeting in the office. It's all online. And then everybody's communicating on the same terms. So um, basically it's all in or, or, or all it's online. And, um, and it's asynchronous communication. If there's an emergency, of course you can pick up the phone and call somebody and say, shit, you know, we really need an answer. But generally we've sort of pivoted to this asynchronous remote-first communication channel and it works really, really well. But, but um, Reed Hastings, the guy you referred to before, the CEO of, of um, Netflix, you know, he, it's funny that he says that he wants everyone local because I think one of the key things that he talks about is managing through context rather than managing through control. And, and managing through to control is like, I'm watching you. I've seen that you walked through the door at 9.07 and that you're leaving at 4.52 and that's cutting back on hours and everything else. That's all about control. It's not smart. It's not a good way to get results. Context is, hey, this is where we're trying to get to as a company. These are our goals. These are the first principles of what underpins this business. Now go and understand them all and then put them together in a way that is innovative and to produce a better result than ever before. And lead by context or, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be in the office. So I'm quite surprised to hear that you say he's all in on um, on office work. Yeah, it's a co- it was in The Economist um, that he's made this comment about, I mean, we'd have to pull the comment up because, you know, and it's out of context. So... Yeah, it's it's slightly surprising comment. Um, uh, you know, I'm just fascinated what value there is in that physicality. You know, it, whether whether people in a room are having a better meeting than people on Zoom. I you you're a big thinker, which is what's great because you've just said something really interesting. Then is don't don't put one group at a disadvantage, which is sort of what that research showed in China that people who worked in the office did better in career path because they're kind of, you know, they're doing what you're saying. They're allowing to be controlled. You know, they're allowing their boss to have some sort of sense of, you know, control, which is quite a deep instinct, I think, in us in a way. It's not entirely logical, is it? It's just a kind of, it's, um, I don't know, controls feels a really mean word, but there's, it, it, it gives you a sense of assurance and it's a tribalness to it, isn't it? It's a sort of, you know, you're in my team almost. Uh, I hate to say it, like this, I've articulated this before, but it's almost like we went through the industrial revolution where we put humans into factories to like stamp out metal objects or whatever they, you know, produced. And that was all about human labour in, in a factory environment. And then the, I reckon the office, these like skyscrapers full of people, they're just like battery hens. Like you're just sticking people into a... Um, air-conditioned environment that allows you to pump out as many eggs or, in this case, you know, pieces of signed paper as possible. And and what remote work is, it's like free-range living. You know, you get to, you still produce the same goods and probably at a high, much higher quality, but you get to live a better life while you do it. And next, it's Robert Wesson from Axiom Financial Services. You know, there's some good people out there, of course, who work in the banks, and if you build a good relationship with them... They will work really hard to try and help. 
but they are in such a straitjacket. You know, they're not dealing with a business where you know you can make decisions. You can your your team can sit together. So I do feel for them sometimes. They they can't also be negative. They can't be sitting out front as a quasi salesperson going. We can't help with anything because compliance will say no, whatever I do. Yeah. So go somewhere else. They can't say that. So they have to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to try and help and don't worry, I'll do my best. And, you know, but the reality is, is that, and maybe that's slightly my point with big business is that there is someone else in the organization with more power than them and more say. So that's the disjointed, and I, I, and that's what frustrates customers and frustrates people. Um, you know, this, this, the, the, the inability to get to the truth. You know, to get through the yeah. bullshit. There's a, there's a culture in banks of safety first, and compliance, compliance takes precedence over everything. And given, given the choice of, of uh, a new customer, and sticking to the rules, particularly after 2008, sticking to the rules always takes precedence. And by the way, this isn't a uh, just a UK-centric problem. I'm, I'm, or I was until recently, CEO of a, of a publicly listed um, company in Canada on the Canadian Stock Exchange that invests in uh, cryptocurrency businesses. And as soon as the, the company... Um, switched from uh, <laughs> its previous incarnation, which was a mining company, to cryptocurrency. The Bank of Montreal said, "No, we don't. We, we're not having your bank account anymore." And so the company suddenly found itself without a bank account. And eventually, we got one with Bank of Canada. But it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. And you'd think it's a publicly listed company on the Canadian Securities Exchange. You'd think that it wouldn't be a problem opening a bank account, but it was absolute hell on earth. But that's because it was to do with cryptocurrencies. I was just going to say, I mean, cr cryptocurrency is obviously particularly difficult at the moment, but also particularly uh, fashionable, I suppose, popular at the moment. Um, source of funds uh, and where those funds have come from is, is the big issue with that. So, you know, banks don't have a huge appetite because they can't really tell exactly where those funds have come from. And, it, and it's difficult um, from a KYC perspective. Um, in, in our case, I, I hear what you're saying about source of funds, but in our case, the source of funds was money that had been in the bank account since it was a, a, a mining company. So, and, and with the bank money in the bank account, so it, it, it saw where the money came from. One probably quite interesting point is that, that word, or the two words bank account, you know what? What does that actually mean these days? What does it actually uh, do? Businesses really need a traditional bank account. Um, you know, for for me, I think people have it in their head. Most clients we speak to say, "I need a traditional bank account," and and we talk to them and we say, "Okay, well, what do you need that bank account for?" They say, "Well, we want to separate from our parent company. We want to register with HMRC. We want to do payroll." We want to be able to accept funds in from third parties internationally and domestically. We want to be able to, to put these bank details on our invoicing so clients can pay into. Uh, we want the funds to be ring-fenced. We want the institution where we hold the funds to be uh, you know, safe, in inverted commas, and or certainly as safe as it can be. We want the online platform to be accessible 24 hours a day. We want the, secu the online security to be as robust as it possibly can be. Um, you know, all of which e-money providers and especially us can, can provide. And I think when you break it down to people, especially people that are a little bit nervous about that, that uh, license, e-money license, and you explain to them that really all they're getting is a, is a unique 
a coded set of numbers, which is the bank account, in inverted commas, and the sort code and the SWIFT code. And well, the SWIFT code is not uh, unique; that's generic. But the sort code and the and the account number are unique. But what they're actually getting is a very, very sophisticated payments platform, which enables them to operate in hundreds of different jurisdictions and do exactly what they want, all from a remote location to touch their fingertips. You know, and and, and then they're probably not getting that with with their normal bank account. So when you put that argument across to people, they generally go, okay, you know, I understand it a bit more now. Perhaps we aren't, don't need to be so hell-bent on a traditional bank account. And lastly, Tom Jeffs from Lucidica. You know, with the the current climate, let's not mention too many things about that. Um, You've got to look for opportunities and you've always got to be positive as a business owner. And um, it's, I mean, it's, there's so much about the journey, owning a business, managing businesses, it's all about the journey and you've got to find positives and find ways in order to get through regardless what's going on in the world. You've got to... You've but got isn't, to... That, isn't that the basic concept of business, that, that if you ever think whatever you're doing right now, if you're not looking for something new, you're dead anyway sort of thing. It's, it's you know... Well, yes and no. I mean, like uh, I love Steve Blank's quote, which is, um, large businesses execute known business models and... Uh, small entrepreneurial businesses uh, find uh, scalable and repeatable new business models. Um, and I don't know whether you can call my main business a startup anymore, considering it's been going for, for 20 years, but it's certainly small. And um, what I love more is finding new things, finding new ways to be better. But I think it's so important in terms of small business, in terms of startup, to to try and find the ups, to try and find and continually search and look for new repeatable models. And I remember talking to, to Andy before, and one of the things he said he likes about our business is that we have many strings to the bow and we find new opportunities and technology is massively broad and and you you, you just find an, another avenue and as something dies away just naturally not because of the political climate because technology changes you're always searching for another thing to 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 find revenue and to find ultimately value for for your clients So there you have it, some of our favourite moments from 2020 here on Business Without And make sure you subscribe to our channel for more episodes in 2021.